This is week four now that we've been in John chapter 8. And when you look at John 8 as a whole, which is our goal today, you see that it is a very contentious interaction between Jesus and a group of people in the temple. But it's notable who these people are with whom Jesus is going back and forth. They're not identified as scribes or as Pharisees or teachers of the law or allies of Rome. Who are these people? Look at verse 25, and we'll see who they are. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They didn't understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And through the whole rest of the text, the people with whom Jesus is going back and forth are people who at this moment heard what he said and believed in him. But what does he say to those same people who this says believed in him later in the text? Well, let's look at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, which is alluding to the virgin birth, not being a virgin birth. So they're accusing his mother of something, right? We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar And the father of lies. Which one is it? Do they believe in him? Or do they not believe in him? Are they children of God? Or are they children of the devil? Verse 41 helps us when the crowd insinuates that Jesus was born illegitimately to Mary. That these people, though they believe in him in some way, there are things they they aren't believing. Right? Right? So this crowd changes rapidly from believing in Jesus to not believing in Jesus. At the end, when he says, before Abraham was, I am, they try to kill him. They drive him out of the temple. So there's a a real fast shift from believing to not believing. But in that shift, there's a lot, I think, for us to learn. For some of us, when we look at our own faith, all we see is our weakness. We see our doubts. We see our struggle to believe. We see our sins. And we begin to fear. We begin to wonder, am I really saved? Am I a child of God? 
For people that struggle with that sense of security, this text is very relevant. Because we see somebody believing and then not believing, and Jesus saying, you're a child of the devil. But beyond our own faith, every one of us has known someone who professed faith in Jesus, but then they walked away. Some of them go so far as to publicly reject Jesus, and some really big questions loom in our minds. Are they saved? Were they ever saved? Did they lose their salvation? How should I pray for this person? What should I say to this person? How do I engage with this? Well, let me point out one very clear truth in this text. Those who are saved not only believe once, they persevere in that belief and it changes them. Don't read more into that than what I've said. I'm not saying that saving faith is perfect, that saving faith is without its doubts, that saving faith is without sin or without even long seasons of unbelief and struggle. What I'm saying is that saving faith is not a a flash in the pan. Something happens deep within a person where they become gripped by Jesus. There's a shift and a change in their lives so that in time, Jesus becomes the bedrock of their life. Jesus makes this really clear in our text. Look at verse 30 through 32. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word. If you look in the front of your worship guide, I had a quote from D.A. Carson in his commentary on John that I thought was really helpful. You can look along as I read it. Carson said, Perseverance is the mark of true faith, of real disciples. A genuine believer remains in Jesus' word, his teaching. That is, such a person obeys it, seeks to understand it better, and finds it more precious, more controlling, precisely when other forces flatly oppose it. It is the one who continues in the teaching who has both the Father and the Son. When Jesus came to this earth, he came to do a supernatural work. He wants to set men, women, boys, and girls free from sin. He didn't just come to change our minds. He didn't just come to give us some new idea. No, he came to revolutionize individual lives and then homes and neighborhoods and workplaces through us. He came to work within us so that we can have communion with God. And this work that Jesus does has some weight to it. There's some permanence to it. It's something that can be undone. Stated more simply, if Jesus sets you free, you will remain free. So these people in John 8, they might have believed something about Jesus. But what has not happened? They've not been set free by Jesus. They haven't been justified. They haven't been adopted into God's family. They're still in the same state that they were before. This is what we've talked about over the last few weeks. And that might make you think, so are there like different, you know, grades of faith, like different qualities of faith, certain degrees? You know, do we need to believe a certain amount to be saved? Is there a certain quality of faith we got to have? That's the wrong way to think about it. Let me try to clarify. To abide in Jesus' word is not intellectual assent to an idea 
at a specific time. Rather, it is when Jesus' words take deep root in you so that your faith perseveres and grows. So salvation doesn't come by you thinking a lot about certain ideas. Uh, Salvation doesn't come by signing a doctrinal statement. No, it's when the truth of what Jesus says takes deep root within you. What Jesus is talking about here is when we so trust what Jesus says that they become our assumptions. That the benchmark of truth is Jesus and what he thinks, what he says. And so our life is shaped by him. And so even, I'll just speak about myself, when I'm doubting, when I'm struggling, when I'm tempted, when I'm suffering, I still find myself wrestling with Jesus and with his words. The name Israel means he who struggles, who wrestles with God. And here's one of the difficult things about this whole conversation. You can't make this happen in you. This is not a work in which any of us can boast and say, oh, look at the faith I've got. I've really trusted hard and I've done my best. We can't boast in this because if a person abides in Jesus' words, if his words take deep root within us, it's all a work of grace. It's a miraculous work of God in us. So if he has you, if he has regenerated you, justified you, adopted you into his family, you're not getting away from him. It's his work. So let's consider this word in which Jesus calls us to abide. So what is this word of Jesus that a person must abide in to be saved? Well, we've seen it writ large in this chapter. We've mentioned it several times, so I'll only make brief references. So first, you must believe that Jesus is the divine Messiah from God. So if you do not believe that Jesus is God, you're still in your sins. If you do not believe that Jesus is the king of the world, come to make all things right, and that he intends to be king of every aspect of your life, if you don't believe that, then you're still in your sins. Paul put it this way in Romans 10. He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus' listeners clearly, clearly did not believe this. It seems like they probably believed him to be the Messiah, some kind of a political leader. They certainly did not believe him to be God. They certainly did not believe him to be born of a virgin. And they had no concept of him being their Lord personally. Maybe the Lord and leader of Israel, yes, but, you know, leave my life to, to me. Do you willingly profess and confess these things? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. If you believe that, you're saved. If you profess faith in Jesus, I, I don't think it's helpful to be constantly re-examining your faith to see if it's authentic. Some of us turn into sort of these morbidly introspective Christians, maybe just me, but who are constantly expecting ourselves to fall away. If you can, don't do that. <laughs> if you profess this faith, that Paul commends us to in Romans 10, assume you're saved and move on to bigger, more important things. You've been justified through the work of Christ. You've been adopted into God's family. Now let's get to the work of sanctification and growth. But what about a person who rejects all this? I I don't know that Jesus is God. I don't know if he came back from the dead. I think this text helps us to answer that. If a person has rejected Jesus as the divine Messiah 
They're not abiding in his word. And what that means is they did not previously accept his word. They were not true disciples. They were false disciples. I mean, how does the text end? Look at verses 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So this declaration, not just he existed before Abraham, that he is God, the I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. People who fall away from the faith usually do so because there's something in Jesus' word that they cannot trust and accept. And the end result is rejection of Jesus. So Jesus' listeners were fine with him being the Messiah. They believed that. But God, before Abraham was, I am, no thanks, we're out. Their faith was partial. It was incomplete. It had not taken root. They believed an important piece of the puzzle... But they missed the big picture of who Jesus was and what Jesus intended to do. And what that means is that their faith was not saving faith. It was a false imitation of saving faith. And perhaps more importantly, they had not been set free by the Holy Spirit. I mean, Jesus doesn't stutter in his response to the people. Look at verse 31 again. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we, you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus says, I am the son of God. I hold the key to my father's house. And if I set you free, if I do this work, you're going to be free. And what that means is that when a person truly receives Jesus' word, God does a work that cannot be reversed. So we've been talking about this whole location, state, relationship, purpose thing for four weeks now. We're going to get to that. So th this is the theological groundwork we've been laying for three weeks. I don't want you to think that every professing Christian lives in danger of falling away, that we're all on a precipice just waiting to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing and our faith all falls apart and we go to hell. That, that's, that is not the sense of Scripture at all. In fact, if it was, that would make faith a work, something that we do and then can fail to do. If you trust Christ, if you believe the gospel, something happens to you that cannot be reversed. As we said last week, if you trust Christ, you receive all the things that Jesus Deserve First, in location. Not only will you go to heaven one day when you die, but even now God takes up his residence with you. You also receive a state that Jesus has. You receive eternal life now that lives forever. Jesus says in this text, if you trust my word, you will never die. You receive a relationship that cannot be altered. You're adopted into the family of God. The Father looks on you with love. He loves you the same way that he loves Jesus. And nothing can separate you from that love. And you have a purpose to glorify God, to follow Jesus, to be like Jesus, and you can do that. If you trust Christ, that is all done, and it cannot be reversed. You will abide in his word. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the doctrinal statement of our denomination, puts it more eloquently than me when they say, this endurance of the saints doesn't depend on their own free will, but on God's unchangeable decree of election." flowing from his voluntary, unchangeable love. It also depends on the effectiveness of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, 
on the indwelling spirit and indwelling seed of God and the saints and on the nature of the covenant of grace. All these establish the certainty and infallibility of their preservation. If he's got you, you're not going anywhere. The reality is, though, we all know people who have professed faith in Christ and then have lived in a way that doesn't look free. They profess faith, maybe even seemingly experience these things for a time, but then no longer do. What then? Well, the author of Hebrews quotes Proverbs when they said this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So what's the author of Hebrews saying? They're saying that if you've been justified by faith, if God has adopted you into his family, if he has taken up residence in your life, if he loves you and intends to shine his glory in you, if he set you free, he's not going to allow you to continue in unbelief and sin. So if a regenerate, justified, and adopted person is living in unbelief or sin, God will not allow them to do so forever. He will bring them back from their exile, even if through remarkable pain. So some people, after professing faith, will find Jesus' word good for a time, but then they walk away. It becomes too hard, too inconvenient or unattractive to them, and they never come back. If that's the case, then they never truly grasp the gospel. They never truly believe to begin with. Well, how do we know? Because if someone has been justified and adopted into God's family, he's not going to let them stay far from him for long. If the people in this chapter had truly belonged to God's family, Jesus would have called them back to himself. But instead, the truth drives them away. They don't believe. Their faith is not saving faith. It will not abide. It doesn't even abide for an afternoon. But when a person truly believes the gospel, a miraculous change occurs. They go from being dead to alive and that life will continue through sanctification to glorification in the presence of God. This is what is meant by perseverance of the saints. Those who belong to Jesus will believe and keep on believing. Sure, there are struggles. Sure, they'll doubt. But the Holy Spirit will keep them moving forward. They will grow. Eternal life will take hold and that person will be changed forever. Now, if you all hung out at FPC for long you would know that I think the language of perseverance of the saints is a little bit flawed because it's not we who persevere. It is the work of God in us. So I prefer to call it the, the perseverance of the Spirit. Who is it that gives us life? Who is it that regenerates us? Who is it that gives us faith as a gift? Who is it that calls us daily to repent and to live in obedience? That's all the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, this theology is all, all good, but what do we do with this? Because this addresses our own faith struggles and the faith struggles of people that we know and love. So where does this meet us in our lives? First, when we ourselves struggle with doubts and sins of our own, our response should be to remember and trust the faithfulness of God in Christ. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that there's a parallel text to this one in John 
What Jesus says negatively in John chapter 8, he says positively in John chapter 14. And interestingly, in John chapter 14, we find true disciples who are also doubting. So hold your finger in John 8. We'll come back there in a second and flip over to John chapter 14. John 14, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. So in John 8, he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. What does he say in John 14? He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So both Thomas and Philip, men who are true disciples, who are now today with Jesus in heaven, both of these men had real questions. They had real doubts. And how does Jesus respond to them? He functionally says, guys, have you forgotten everything you've experienced with me? Have you forgotten the signs I performed, the the things that I've said? Remember my words. Remember my works. You've seen the Father in me. What does this teach us about doubt? Doubt comes from forgetting what Jesus has done. The difficulties of life swell around us. We become like the disciples in the storm-tossed ship. All we see is the waves. And we don't have the presence of mind or heart to stop and remember what Jesus has done. That's where our doubts come from. And so when we're struggling to trust, what do we do? We must remember what Christ accomplished in his earthly lifetime, through church history, in our own lives, and in the lives of Christians that we know. If you're struggling with doubt, the answer is not to panic, that you don't have real faith and then scrutinize the quality of your faith. As Tim Keller used to say, it's not the strength of our faith that saves us, but the strength of the one that we trust in. So if you're struggling with doubt, if you can, by the Holy Spirit, find the ability, simply stop and remember. Remind yourself of what Jesus has done. Stop and say, wait a second, what have I seen? What do I know? What have you witnessed of Christ? In your life, in the word, throughout the history of the church, or in the lives of Christians that you know, when I struggle with doubt, I have to remind myself of all the ways I've seen God work in my life and in the lives of others. He's been doing this for centuries in God's people. The people in John 8 couldn't bring themselves to believe that Jesus was God. What they had seen and experienced of Jesus had not convinced them. I'm convinced. And there's a whole host of people in here that are convinced as well. We have seen the work of God in our lives through the word. And when we're doubting, we just have to stop and remember 
what we have seen and experienced, how we've seen his redeeming work come to bear in our lives. But doubt, intellectual doubt, is not the only problem that we face. We also struggle to be faithful. We sin. Even though we've been set free, we still sin. So what do we do then? When we're struggling with sin, we need to remember and believe the promises of Jesus. Every time we sin, we're not just ignoring Jesus or making a bad choice. No, every time we're sin, we are ignoring promises that he has made. Functionally, we're not believing those promises. I mean, what does he promise in this text? He says, if I set you free, you will be set free indeed. And that means not only from death and guilt and hell, he means sin's enslaving power. Look again at verse 34. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. When I sin, I'm ignoring this promise. I'm choosing to forget it or not believe it. I'm saying, nah, I'm not free. I'm going to pretend I'm still enslaved. I'm going to pretend I'm not a a son of God anymore. It's self-deception. It's self-enslavement. It's foolishness. And granted, God will not allow a Christian to continue in that way. He will discipline us and bring us back. But when we see our sin, when we're being tempted, when we're struggling, what do we do? What are these promises that we need to remember? Here's what we need to to remember and, and believe. We need to remember and believe our objective freedom from sin and its entangling power. We need to remember and believe the inclusion and love of the Father that is ours in Christ And we need to remember and believe our eternal state and purpose that have already begun now. All these things we've been talking about over the last three weeks. If you're in Christ, God has promised to make you holy. And if you're struggling with sin, these are some promises you need to claim. You are free from sin. You are free to obey God. And perhaps even more powerfully, you are loved by God. Even when you're sinning, he loves you because the righteousness of Christ is yours. And you are alive, eternally alive. Sin and death have no power, no more claim on you because of the work of Jesus. So if you are struggling with sin, or maybe you're not struggling, you just have a little pet sin you've kind of taken alongside you, these three promises need to become like water and oxygen to you. You need to sing them, recite them, Tell them to others because there's power in what Jesus has promised. If Jesus sets you free, you will remain free. So be free. Live free. This is your inheritance. This is your future. This is your now. So believe it and live into it. Keep on believing. Abide in Jesus' word. Repent and let him do the work of sanctification in your life. Remember the promises and remember what he has done. But what about the people we love who once professed faith and do no longer? When a person professes faith no longer, one of two things is true. Either they never truly trusted Christ and the Spirit has not done his justifying and adopting work, or they are Christians in deep sin and faithlessness who will experience deep, painful discipline until they are restored to renewed faith and repentance. So yes, um, it's not our place to judge a person. If a person once professed faith and does no longer, one of these things is true of them. And you don't know which one it is. They may not even know which one it is. Only time and eternity will tell the difference. So 
It's not our place to determine in our minds and judgment which category a person falls into. It's only our job to call them to faith and repentance. Whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, the message from us is the same. So the category they're in is kind of inconsequential. Because every human being on this planet needs to know and believe what Jesus has done, what Jesus has promised. What does Jesus call this crowd to do? He calls them to believe. So the message is the same either way. So if a person has rejected Jesus, regardless of their past, we who trust Christ are to call them to faith and repentance. So no doubt you have friends, family members whose faces and names you can call to mind right now. They may still be a Christian. So pray that God will discipline them. I understand that may seem like a coarse prayer to pray. But he says in Hebrews, if I don't discipline them, they're not my children. So if they've walked away, pray that God would do his disciplining work. That he will, in love, introduce pain into their life to bring them back to faith and repentance. That they will learn to fear God once more. So that they will flee to the cross. And then, what's your job beyond praying? Remind them time and time again of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Invite them to engage with Jesus once more. And if they, in their hardness of heart, tell you to stop telling them about Jesus, what then? Pray, 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 pray. And then when the time seems right, tell them again. Never stop speaking and showing the glory of Jesus. These are challenging situations, no doubt. But the solution posed by Jesus is the same. Remember what Jesus said. Remember what Jesus has done. Believe and repent. In the end, this challenging chapter is laced with a sweet and wonderful truth. If Jesus has set you free, you will remain free. You can live in that freedom. You need not forever be riddled with doubt and sin. You need not feel like you're dangling from a web above the fires of God's wrath and waiting for the inevitable fall. No, if Jesus sets you free, you will remain free. And you can live into the inheritance that is yours in Christ. You can know the sweet closeness of God. You can revel in his love because you're his child. You can live your life in the way it was meant to be lived for God's glory in relationship with God. All of that can be yours. And how? There's no trick. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus and continue trusting him. Make him the bedrock and foundation of your life. Abide in him. Abide in his word. And he will give you the life that you were made for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the comfort that it brings. Thank you for the challenge that it brings. Lord, I want to pray for those who are here this morning who themselves doubt whether they are truly yours. Holy Spirit, fill them with faith. Help them to hear the promise that there is nothing they can do to make themselves right with you, Father, because Jesus has done it all for them already. May they see your work in their life, the power of the resurrection. And we pray that you would set them free from their guilt, their shame, and from the power of sin. But Father, we also lift up those people that we love who've walked away. In fact, even now in a moment of silence, we're each going to silently 
lift up their names in our hearts to you. Holy Spirit, pursue them in your mercy. Bring them back that they would profess that Jesus is Lord, that they believe that he is the Son of God that you raised from the dead, and that in him they would find the hope and peace and purpose for which all of us long. And may we have the opportunity, if not in this life, then in the next, to have the joy of knowing that these people we love have come to trust Christ. And Lord, show us when and how to carefully and lovingly share your good news with them. Because Lord, it breaks our hearts. So we pray, O oh God, that you would do this work, that you would glorify yourself in the weakness of the ones we love, even as you glorified yourself in our own weakness. We trust you. Help us in our unbelief. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.